Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Are lawmakers contrived to make spirituous liquors in more general use than bread? They are constantly canting the drunkenness of the people and take no pains to discourage distillation as it raises the value of their lands. They accuse us of drunkenness. They export our raw materials. They say we are idiots and mock our poverty. Thus, the necessaries of life are put out of our reach. John Harrop, January 1st, 1809. Marie, Mm. I'm so excited to do this series. You're so excited for the famine. It's okay. <laughs> Let's put this in context, people. Yeah. This series, dear listeners of the Mad Scientist podcast, we are going to be talking about the Irish famine. This is a rough topic. It is a extremely complex and interesting historical story. It is a story about how science doesn't catch up to politics and social situations and economics. And it's a story about how much damage people who are tied completely to one form of philosophy without thinking about anything else, how much damage those people can do. Yeah. I think the thing that I was most blown away about with when learning about the Irish famine was again, just sort of the scope, how long it affected Ireland, but then also really like you were saying how capitalism had such a huge part in bringing about what um, the economics in Ireland that were able to sustain them for a certain period of time, but then also what ended up getting usurped from them by the English government. So I think it's just really the whole scope of it is, is, is something you don't really learn about. You, you know, about like the potato famine and sort of more, much more general terms, but sort of the, the gravity of, of what happened is, is immense and really interesting as well. The Irish famine is an event which many in the United States have heard about through stories passed down by our ancestors, grandparents and great grandparents, who escaped Ireland into the ports of the New World. It stands in an odd contrast with itself. At the one hand, the beginning of a great exodus, an eventual beginning of a strong tradition of Irish Americans, really letting these people become a foundational part of the cultural tapestries of places like Philadelphia, Boston, New York City. I mean, when I think of New York, I think about Irish immigrants coming here to the city 
mingling with the Italian immigrants and it creating this cool, amazing culture of New York City. When I think about what New York City culture is, I think of it as being kind of the mix between Irish and Italian cultures. Yeah, and having married into a second generation Irish family who's my husband's grandparents actually, uh, you know, not during the famine, clearly, but um, came to the United States, uh, immigrated to the United States. And I will say that, you know, sort of the same tropes and um, racism that they faced, you know, in when they were in Ireland um, under English rule were sort of the same things that they ended up facing here as well. It's right? the same stereotypes, the same sort of the same, um, you know, just hearing some of some of his grandparents' stories that were written down about, you know, how Irish need not apply for jobs were signs that they had in the Bronx in in New York was was, uh, you know, again, really just surprising to me because, um, you know, like you were saying, they really were they really are a vital part of uh, American history, you know, and, and yeah. kind of our heritage and the big melting pot. But I think it's hard to reconcile with just the amount of um, hardship that was put on them. It's a it's a very real and very stark reminder of the evils that bad government and absolute surety and the rightness of one's views can have on people. To some, the Irish famines are a horror akin to a major weather event like an earthquake or a tsunami, something that one could not prevent, but which government mismanagement caused to grow into a true tragedy. To others, the famine represents another in a series of attempts by the British monarchy to break the people of Ireland into submission, culminating in significant death and destruction in the name of proper governmental management. It's hard to pin down exactly where the truth lies, but we're going to cover this deeply fascinating and horrible event in the following series and hopefully teach you a little bit of something about the history of the Irish famine. famine that we're talking about is actually the middle of a series that hit Europe in the 1700s to late 1800s. The initial famine occurred from 1740 to 1741, and it killed approximately 300,000 to 480,000 people, which is about 20% of the Irish population of the time. And that famine is known as the year of slaughter. That, that first famine <laughs> is caused by numerous years of extreme cold and then extremely dry weather eventually resulting in a total collapse of the milk, grain, and potato supplies. And that famine came at the end of what's known as the Little Ice Age, a period where Europe as a whole saw very cold temperatures with very little rain or snow accumulation. Temperatures recorded at the time, and there's not that many of them, right? We weren't really recording temperatures, but we're talking about temperatures of 30 below Celsius regularly occurring in the deep winter. And so that means indoor temperatures at the time would have been around minus 10 degrees Celsius for our English listeners. That's between 30 below and 10 above Fahrenheit. So extremely cold. And this cold shock went through all of Europe, but Ireland was particularly hard hit due to the reliance on the potato, the general lack of infrastructure. Um, 
and also just the fact that Ireland was basically used as the resource. Like Ireland was used as a place to take out resources for yeah. the English government. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, you know, today when we talk about places like communities that used to be, used to be um, mining towns or, um, when we talk about like economic hardship in the United States, especially, we talk a lot about extractive economies, right? So a big company comes in, it extracts all of the goods and services out of an area, right? It takes all the, um, it takes all the people, it takes all the goods, it, it does things like that, and eventually leaves behind ghost towns. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what England did to all of Ireland for throughout its entire history. Yes, and not just one resource, but. All like of them. Every resource and anything they had that was of value that could be exported, labor, cattle, grain, alcohol, whatever it was, they were they depleted. They depleted Ireland of 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 basically everything but potatoes. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, but even even potato. Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, yeah, even potatoes. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, it just again, and I mean, I, I, you know, to try and be respectful to, you know, our English, our English listeners, you know, it, it is reflective of, of any type of large governing body or system, uh, but it imposes its will on, on another, on another country, right? Which I, we, America has done the same thing um, here with uh, the Native Absolutely. American indigenous population. So I think it is something that every, you know, it, that no one is, um, no one is immune from or innocent of. Uh, so I just kind of want to throw that out there as well in discussing this and yeah. uh, the, kind of the language around it. I, I would hope we're not, you know, we're trying to be fair about it. Listen, my last name is Cogswell. <laughs> All right. You don't get more British then uh, then the last name Cogswell, all right? And with Mayhew. You yeah. can with Mayhew. I mean, we are yeah. basically, you know, we are basically kind of post-colonial. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, yeah. here's the thing, right? I think it's it's hard to not look at the famine and say, it's not like the English poor were doing much better, right? This is Agreed. the fault of monarchy yes. and idiotic government. Yes. This is not the fault of the English people, right? This is the fault of... Agreed. Of the queen. Agreed. I think that's fine. I think we could pin this on the queen. Anyways. Or of just, again, sort of the governing mindset at that time, which is yeah. deeply rooted in capitalism and the type of capitalism that we're going to get to speaking about. Absolutely. So the second famine, which is the one we're talking mm -hmm. about in this series, this is known as the Great Famine. This one occurs between 1845 and 1852. And you won't see a stop really of the exodus of the Irish until like 1855. And even then it just kind of, it keeps happening. Yeah. Right. At that point, most of the people of Ireland, if they could get off, they were going to get off the Island. Yeah. The famine, this famine, the great famine would kill approximately a million people in Ireland. Um, and around a hundred thousand throughout the rest of Europe besides deaths, approximately a million people would flee Ireland to other countries as well. So that's an initial loss of 20 to 25% of the entire population. And again, the exodus continued. So another 2 million people would flee from Ireland up to 1855. 
to say that this is a, a des, I mean, decimation is not the right word. Decimation means a loss of 10%, right? This is 20 to 25% of the population um, by some, you know, by some estimates, even more, right? This is like a, a quartering right. of the population of this country. It's, it's absolutely mind boggling. And it's not the last famine. A third famine occurs in 1879. This one doesn't cause as much mass death, but it does cause hunger and malnutrition. That famine, the last one, is really localized to Western Ireland counties, um, with Connacht being particularly hard hit. And it, it led to an internal migration as rural Irish moved towards the cities. And again, this is a temporary change, right? They, it, they kind of keep moving about and trying to find food and work. And eventually would lead to the second mass exodus out of Ireland and kind of creates the situation that we think of as being the bed from which things like the troubles and revolution would spring. Yeah. And just think about being, again, being left one of the populations left in Ireland and how scarce things were and sort of just the moral uh, depression that you would be in, in that population, like everyone's leaving or everyone's sick and dying. A huge population, you know, and it's, to me, it's like that not being able to escape that and not being able to farm or not being able to, you know, being driven into a city and having to change your livelihood under this sort of huge, almost long-term duress is, is mind-blowing. I mean, you essentially, it is... A complete loss of your community. Yes. It's a complete loss of your community, of your people. Your heritage, is, your history, your folklore, exactly. all of it just sort of, you know, blown. And this is not the, this is not like the first time that Ireland's population and people's, the language, the culture has been completely destroyed by an, an oppressing army or a, or bad governance or what have you, right? Like this is kind of the history of Ireland. It's really a fascinating deep history and very resilient people and culture. So the causes of the great famine, when I tell you that there are books about the causes of the great famine that all disagree, I'm saying that because I've read them. <laughs> there are a lot of books on this. There's a lot of really good stuff out there. A lot of very, very interesting stuff. We're going to talk to some people during this series that I think will really point us in some very interesting directions that are, now being looked at, but in general, the kind of consensus view is that the following are the major causes that people usually point to. So the first one is dependence on a single crop for sustenance and economy, the potato. Mm. The blight itself, today we would call it late blight, it's caused by what's called a phthora infest. It's a water mold. We're going to get more into that as we get deeper into the series. But essentially, this is a type of blight that not only will kill the plants on the vine, but it'll even kill plants that you just had stored for a while. And it spreads in very damp, um, windy. It it spreads in damp conditions, which Ireland, of course, Mm -hmm. damp. Um, And it just it's like. Again, so much could have been done to make this better, but the government was full of idiots. Second big thing, lack of modernization and industrialization in Ireland, both in terms of things like transportation and shipping, but also just the economy. 
Ireland at this time is essentially like proto-agrarian capitalism. So most economic activity happens in rural environments. Stuff is bartered for. There isn't like there is obviously like coinage and money, but bartering with potatoes and payment in potatoes is very, very common. And especially in these small places, again, you have to remember for decades, the English have been taking out of Ireland everything of value they can. People to fight in wars, Mm -hmm. money, gold, uh, you know, uh, crops, resources, animals, you know, everything. They're taking everything. And so all that's left is this sort of almost feudal barter landowner system. That is just it's just mind boggling to think that this was existing during this time. If you've played The Witcher and you've been to like the cities where it's like there's a lord who owns all the land and people are just kind of working the land for the lord. That's what we're talking about here. It's insanity. Well, and also there's nothing to your point. There's no infrastructure going in. Right. So everything, all labor is hand labor. Like there's very little, um, you know. Yeah, there's no machines. There's no machines. They're even rudimentary. It's all kind of hand labor. Um, and to your point again, like I think again, the thing that I was the most surprised at was the amount of export that the British would take. I mean, uh, bricks, clay for bricks. You know, all the way down to like I mean, basically they're exporting dirt, the dirt or the clay. Right. To make bricks and to and to build their own to build their own um, capitals and buildings and homes. But there's no infrastructure that you would need, like if you were prospering or if you had the, you know, again, the population and the goods, you would begin to figure out, you know, mother being the necessity of invention. Right. You'd begin to figure out how to to do things quicker and faster for to, to make money and to supply goods. But here it's just like none of that, none of that is really in place. Well, so the, this goes into the next two problems really, mm-hmm. really, really significantly. So the first one, and frankly, I think this is probably like if we're listing the, the problems that caused this to happen, this is my like number one or maybe even number two, the absent landowner class. So, I talked about how this is like the Witcher, right? This is basically like a lord and having serfs. The way that the Irish economy worked, the way that Irish life worked during this time period was huge chunks of land, the vast majority of land, were owned by very, very wealthy individuals who did not live in Ireland. They were owned by landlords who lived in Britain. Those people would then rent the land out to other farmers. So if you were lucky, you owned a large farm on this land. You didn't own it. You had a relatively large plot of land that you were renting out from the landlord. That large plot could be between, say, like five to ten acres. And the way it would work is you would pay your rent to the landlord in money or in potatoes or in, in crops or whatever, right? So the landlord maybe would be selling the crops at market for cash, but you would get paid by being able to live on the land and by being allowed to grow your own crops on the land to feed your family and barter in your local economy. With. Which again, probably 
at some point generationally belonged to the family that was now renting. I'm air quoting well, renting. You, exactly. You know, no, it's like imagine if everything in your town was owned by a single person. So every single time you went to the store to buy something, you were paying into a shopkeeper who's part of their money was going to the landlord who owned the land that they worked on, who was the same goddamn landlord you were paying potatoes to, to fucking make your potatoes to sell to the goddamn shop. It, it's a house of cards, Marie. Right, and you're indentured. I mean, basically that's what it is. Exactly. You're indentured at that point. This is indentured servitude. It's serfdom. Yes, it is it serfdom. Is serfdom. So on top of this though, so if you were, you're again, you're lucky if you're a mid-sized farmer, the, the majority of the Irish tenants were cottiers. They were only paid in potatoes that they could grow in excess of the crop required by the landlord to continue living on the land. They would have like one to two acre plots and they lived in shacks where they lived in these cottier shacks that are made out of mud and um, like mud and sticks and whatever. And so. This system where, again, these rich people are living outside of Ireland, that means that none of the benefits of the money that these people are making, right? None of the money is going into creating schools yeah. for no the kids of the rich people to go yeah. to. Yeah. They're not building roads because why the hell do they need roads? None of their fancy carriages are going on there. They don't need to bring the arts or cleanliness or anything, right? They can just, it's like a junk drawer. Yeah. You can just leave crap there in Ireland and when you need it, you just take it out, but you right. don't ever have to go there. So who cares what it's like? Who cares what it's like to live in Ireland? If you can get all the benefits without having to do any of the work. Right. And if you're setting up sort of this micro serfdom within your own farm, right? You have the larger farm owners who probably are putting pressure on the smaller, uh, the smaller cottiers, right, to produce, right? So, I mean, every, there's no, um, there's no equal sharing or community or anything along those lines. I mean, everything is sort of set up to be exported. Exactly. And so again, if you're a farmer working this land, why the hell would you spend any of your excess money or time to make the land of someone else better? No. Yeah. Imagine, imagine, right, that you are a guy who works at a, you work at a bank. And so every day you drive on the highway. Are you ever going to go out of your way to fix the potholes on the highway? Hell no, right? That's not your job. That's the government's job. Yes. yes. In Ireland, though, right, it's the same yeah. idea here, right? The people that are working the land, the people that are making these trips to the shops and everything else and whatever, it's not their land. So why would they make it better? Why would they spend their money to make the land of someone else that they've never seen that they'll never meet? Right. Why right. would they make it better? Well, they're so just that basically leads trying to, that to lack survive. Of industrialization. It's not like they have a lot of spare time to even consider making something better. It's everything is survival mode. Absolutely. So at this time, that means that there was approximately a million pounds of money left Ireland every year. So almost the entirety of the Irish economy was being exported off the island at this time. Which again, if you just think about the United States or so I'm in California, right? And I think about the California economy is you know, I it used to be like the fifth greatest in the world or whatever, right? But it's a sizable economy if if 
the majority of that was being exported to someplace else, right? The majority of what you're making money off of, of what you're doing is immediately leaving what that would do to what that would do to where you're living and your environment well, it's, and it's everything. Ex- it's exact. Yeah. It's exactly what happened and still happens in places like say Ohio, West Virginia, yes. Pennsylvania, right? Yes. It's a mining town on steroids. Yes. yes. You know, this yes. is the exact same thing. Again, it's an extractive economy. The, the next thing that really makes a big issue. So again, we're, we're going to kind of re, re go here, right? <laughs> so dependence on the potato, the single crop economy, that's a huge issue. The lack of modernization, industrialization, huge issue that is caused by the absent landowner class who creates just the economic conditions that are rife for exploitation and suffering. I, and on top of that, there's anti-Irish sentiment. So the people who own that land are the English. Then the vast majority of that farmland was seized by the English in the 16th and 17th <laughs> centuries. It was removed from the hands of Irish Catholics and given to English, Scottish, or Welsh Protestants from notable families. Yes. So you also there have the religious law. factor going in there. Yes. So, so there was a there is a law on the books at this time that Irish Catholics are not allowed to inherit land, yes. but Protestants yes. could. Right. So it created a situation where even if you yourself did become a, a, a very uh, successful farmer, if your kids can't inherit anything that you make. Right. Right. It's very hard to right. build wealth. Right. If you've played Crusader Kings three <laughs> and you play in like the medieval ages before you're given the like, what is it called? Like soul partition or whatever, where your, your children can sure. inherit all your titles. You know how goddamn hard it is to beat Charlemagne. It's impossible. He- all right. Yes. And so I don't know the video game that you were. I barely know Witcher, but I think that the the biggest thing about this is you are not allowed to keep any part of your cultural identity or your religion and you're not allowed to pass that down. So it's it's really, really especially insidious as well. And anything that goes with that. And a part of that, actually, and again, it. This isn't just us being like, man, this is an insidious way to do this. That was the stated goal of the English government. Yes. Yeah. The stated goal was to basically like they they looked at the Irish as almost inhuman. They thought that they were they were like a lower class of people Mm -hmm. who had to be beaten and starved into civility. Yes. And one of the reasons they thought that, and this is insane, they thought that the potato was too easy to grow. Which they yeah. thought that, again, God, so they believe in God, right? Mm-hmm. And God made the potato mm-hmm. and God made the potato easy to grow and cultivate. But instead of thinking that the potato was like a gift from God to make life easy, the Protestants said, God doesn't want us to be happy. The potato is the work of the devil. (laughs) Clearly the potato is evil because it's too easy. You have too much time for whittling and singing and whistling and having a great time. Right. Yeah. So they thought that cultivation of the potato 
it gave the Irish too much free time, and they said it made them lazy, dumb, and drunk. That right. was what they thought. Right. Well, and again, to keep up this form of economics, right, you can't, you cannot have any type of sympathy for the thing you're exploiting. Absolutely. Right? You can't make that thing equal Absolutely. to you because then you're culpable, right? You are doing this. You are, you are, you know, you have to do this because this group of people, you know, this entire country of people can't take care of themselves. They're substandard. They're, they're not, they're not you. So you have to enforce something or else they would be, you know, like they would just be sitting back there growing potatoes is the mindset. And which is if you uh, amazing again, when you say it out loud, it is just so incredible that like that you could actually get to that point culturally. I mean, so the crazy thing is if you replace potato mm -hmm. for welfare. Yes, exactly. And you replace yes. Irish for welfare queen. Yes. It's basically the same ideas that are pushed today. It is. It is. And that that comes to the last part of this, which frankly, I think is probably the main cause of all this evil. Capitalism, baby. Yes. And that's where we're going to pick up after the break. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Now, I do want to say, I do want to say it's not just, it's not just Chris and Marie dogging on capitalism. Right. Because I know I know that we get I know that we you know, this is one of our favorite things to discuss. But I, in my opinion, this the Irish famine is a really good example of what happens um, when it's left unchecked. This isn't even just us saying this. There it's are documents. We have citations. <laughs> it's right. It is. Yeah. I mean, I would think. You know, Ben Bernanke, uh, you know, um, any 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 financial leader, um, Warren Buffett can probably look at something like the Irish famine and be like, yeah, that was a, that's just a, that was just a step too far. Right. 
no sensible person is looking back at the Irish famine and being like, that's a W for capitalism. Yes. <laughs> no, this is not this is not a W for capitalism. No. So no. the Irish famine was all of those other issues we talked about, right? The the absentee landowners that led to the lack of modernization. It led to the it led to really the reliance on the potato. It led to this kind of extractive economy. All of that would have probably led to a pretty bad situation. You know, it still would have been a, a famine that we talked about in history. But ultimately, it's the mismanagement of the famine and the relief that was given to the Irish. That is, it makes it, it goes from it being just a natural catastrophe to being what some people honestly consider to be genocide. nearly a genocide. Yeah. yeah. The Irish people were part of like the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. right? And the prevailing notion at the time was what's known as laissez-faire capitalism. Laissez-faire mm -hmm. capitalism, it it's, a, it's a theory that says that a hands-off approach to the market is the best approach you can take. Yes. So essentially, if you let tradesmen have free reign over the marketplace, with as little government intervention as possible, you will end up with the most just system of policies and the most equitable economy as possible. And not only will it be just and, and, and equitable, but it'll be in accordance with natural laws. Yes. Yes. Because this yes. idea comes from Adam Smith, a noted weirdo <laughs> and terrible fucking writer. <laughs> All right. <laughs> a noted weirdo. Ah, excellent. Well, the base. So Adam Smith is born in 1723. The basic gist of what this idea is, right, mm -hmm. is that you do things because they're good for you. You don't do them because you're charitable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And what this idea was is that if you just let people be selfish Everything will work out big just group fine. Them, if, uh, kind of, yeah. <laughs> if, you get a, if you get a big enough group of them together, the fact that we have to trade with each other means that on average, all of the people who are going to try to take advantage of that situation, all the people who are going to be uh, evil and harming other people and whatever, all of those people will eventually be kicked out by the mob. Yes, and so, the mob will be just and self-governed. Exactly. And so that's what mobs are group, known for this, is restraint. So, yeah, the idea and, and, and it's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. So Adam Smith. He's really known for this idea of the, the invisible hand of the marketplace, yes. which is this this exact exact idea that we're describing here, that the market will tend to correct for like vacuums uh, where, you know, one area doesn't have something and then a market will, will spring up for mm -hmm. it and it will help more people become rich because of what he described as, as the division of labor. Right. And it doesn't need to be regulated. It does not need any type of regulation from any type of third party. Yes. It self-regulates. Exactly. And, and essentially it's an idea that if you give people, if you let people be, innovative and mm -hmm. creative that it's the best thing for most people. It's the best thing for society as a whole. And it's interesting because 
in some ways, what Adam Smith describes in his work makes a lot of sense if you read it. Well, I would agree that free markets uh, help with competition and with innovation, right? Like if you have many different entries to a marketplace, all acting kind of in their own best self-interest, you get innovation. That is one that is yes. that is one of the best ways of of looking at it, right? If you have a monopoly, if you just have one giant company or entity that just keeps buying up other things, that's not a competitive market. That doesn't foster innovation. You have to have you have to have sort of that diversity and little or no oversight to to you know that would that would stifle that type of that type of growth i can get that to a point and i agree with it to a point it's interesting because he's not so the book that he's the most famous for is the wealth of nations Mm -hmm. this comes as the full title is an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations and that follows an earlier work that he wrote called the theory of moral sentiments which he actually thought was the better work i tend to agree with him i would say but the idea here is that, like Marie said, he what he's trying to do in The Wealth of Nations is describe and understand how these burgeoning capitalist societies are, are working, how free markets occurs. And so this is different than mercantilism, which came before um, the free market capitalist economies of Adam Smith's day. Mercantilism was a system where essentially trade determined the cost and value of things. So it was trade along these trade routes and the, 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 the traders themselves who really drove this. What Adam Smith is describing with capitalism is a system whereby like trade is still important, of course, but really it is the industrial revolution and industriousness and the division of labor that allows for things to be made in a way that they were never made before. So the example that he gives that's probably the most famous example is that of a pin maker, which is a pretty like stupid example in today's day, right? A pin maker, that's a machine that does that. But let's take, for example, somebody who makes pies at a shop. All right. Yeah. You've got my okay. attention. All right. So to make a pie, you need to first make the dough. You need to then lay out the the pie dough crust on the bottom. You have to make the filling. You have to fill and then cover the dough, uh, the pie rather. Mm -hmm. You have to crimp the edges and make sure that everything is perfect there. You then maybe have to make it look nice, right? So maybe you add a little little drawing to the top of it or whatever. Something to zhuzh it up a little bit, right? Then you bake it, take it out of the oven, package it up, and then you have to sell it. Yes. If a single person was doing that, they might be able to get a really nice pie, right? They can make a really great pie, but it would take them a long time. Mm -hmm, Because they'd have to do everything, right? There's no division of labor. Exactly. So let's say it takes 12 hours to make a single pie by one person, which is pretty pretty long, but let's just say it's 12 hours. And that is long. What Adam Smith said was because of the Industrial Revolution, there is now a division of labor. So instead of there being one person making one pie taking 12 hours, you have 12 people each taking one hour to do one piece of the pie making process. So you got one person who makes the dough. 
You got another person who cuts the dough, one person who makes the filling, one person who bakes it, one person who sells it, one person who wraps it, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. In that way, you could basically multiply the work that's able to be done. So again, instead of one person taking 12 hours to make one pie, mm -hmm. now it's 12 people making 12 pies in 12 hours. Yes. And so his argument was that this division of labor, what it does is it naturally creates a division of people as well. So the people at the bottom, the people who are doing the jobs that require the least amount of skill, they're being paid the least. The people at the top who are doing the most skill should be paid the most. And because of the need to increase efficiency in these systems, if the government just left the systems alone, yeah. eventually you're going to get really great divisions of labor. Yes. You're going to get a really productive society yes. that's able to make more than we've ever been able to make in the history of human civilization. You'll have many different pie makers and then there'll be better competition and better pricing for pies. Well, and on top of that, right, yeah. if if every person in a, in a society gets really good at one piece of a system, that means that they are required to trade with each other, right? Mm -hmm. A single person couldn't be the blacksmith and the shoemaker and the leather worker and the cook and the bookkeeper and the whatever, right? Right, they have to rely and that's on maybe others. That's exactly, yes. that's what it was maybe like back a thousand years ago, right? Mm. What his argument was is that because of the division of labor, Mm -hmm. Now you have areas that are really good at making pins. So you got one part of town that's great at making pies, one part of town that's really good at building cars, one part of town that's really great at making shoes. And because of that, you have to trade amongst those different parts of towns, those different cities, those different countries. And it, again, creates a system where people are more likely to work together because they have to trade with each right. other for what they need. Well, and they have to work together in their own supply chain, in their own division Absolutely. of labor, right? You need the people that are, you need each part of that division of labor to get the final product, hypothetically. So that should foster a stronger workforce that way, right? More, Absolutely. more I can't even think of what the right word is. Sorry, because I'm still so baffled at, that somebody thought that this was actually going to work. <laughs> well, so it's it's interesting, right? The, Camaraderie, the that, again, right? There would be the, an equal appreciation for that division of labor, even for the unskilled, because you still need them. So, so here's the thing. He's not actually giving any moral reasonings right. in an inquiry right. into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. Right. He's not saying this is good or bad. Right. He's saying this is what's happening. <laughs> right? Yeah. He's reporting on what's That's happening. That's a good point. Yeah, he's not advocating he makes the, for he, it necessarily. He, he makes the case that this is a way for a nation to become wealthy and for more people in a society to become rich mm -hmm. and, and, and you know benefit from the society. But he gives no moral claims one way or the other about whether or not this is moral. Is this the right in way another to work, <laughs> Well, it's interesting, right? In another work, the theory of moral sentiments, in fact, he even touches on this issue. So he talks about how in the in the theory of moral sentiments, what he says is that our what we view as being moral or immoral, good or bad, mm -hmm. all comes down to our sympathies with other people. So our sympathy is something within us that naturally makes us feel happy when other people are happy, sad when other people are sad, whatever. He's talking about empathy. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. And so what he says is that. 
because of empathy, we tend to want to see people who are doing well. Yes. And we don't like to see people who are doing badly. And I don't mean that as like just or unjust. I mean that literally like you like to see somebody who's happy, fat, having a great ass time. You hate to see somebody who's starving to death. You don't like to see people in a famine. And so he says that what we tend to do then is rationalize those sympathies. So if we see somebody who's feeling happy for a reason that we accept that we, we can understand why they'd feel happy, then we approve of that sentiment. And we think that what they're doing is right. But if we see somebody who's being happy, mm-hmm. but the cause of their happiness, we cannot sympathize with. Then we revolt. We, we, we feel revulsion at that person. We think that there's something wrong with them. They're immoral. All right. Mm-hmm. So if I see somebody petting a cat and they're smiling, I'm going to think I get it, man. Cats are fucking great. Yes. That guy's moral yes. as hell. Yes. But if somebody is like, you know, punching a cat and smiling and being like, isn't this great? I fucking hate cats. That guy is a sicko. Don't like him. Immoral. Yes. So the basic idea here then is if we can sympathize with what someone is feeling and the cause of that feeling. Right. We think it's moral and right. right. If we sympathize. But so if there's a mismatch is when we think that they're immoral or wrong. Right. Whether or not the feeling is like a good feeling like happiness or maybe a negative feeling like anger or whatever. Right. And it's not so much like your example with using physical violence for, you know, that's that's sort of like violence to others, I think, was outside of his rationale, though. You should not sympathize with, you know, seeing violence done. Right. That's not that's not kind of what he was really getting at was it i mean it was more like you you feel you should feel like you don't you don't sympathize or have empathy with someone if they are being selfish and not sharing their pies is well, that closer to, was the no, physical violence like actually no one of the things? because he he makes he makes room for there being like again if we somebody if we see somebody kill a person who is, if we see someone kill someone in war, we think of them as a hero. Right. Okay. So yeah. All right. All right. All right. Right. So yeah, he, no, he makes the case that that's still fine. Right. Not that it's fine that, because again, this is about how morals develop, not whether or not something is good or bad. It's about how morality develops. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So one of these moralities that he talks about or one of these moral feelings that he, he notices in society and thinks is wrong is that because we like to see people doing well, we tend to think of the rich as having to have been virtuous. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're rich, we want to believe that they must have been doing something good. And so we ascribe to the rich virtues that they may not actually. What? And on the other hand. We view the poor as having vices that they may not otherwise have. Right. And he talks about this as being a, a, an evil that society does. That being poor is just sort of something that happens in society. There's always going to be poverty. And his argument is that the tendency to create moral fashions mm-hmm. out of whatever the rich are doing 
um, and vice versa, kind of moral, you know, vices of fashion or fashionable vices that the poor must be doing. That's just a way for us to kind of make ourselves feel better about how badly the poor are doing. Yeah, but didn't he? So I'm glad he's writing this treatise to, you know, follow up the thing that actually caused the problem. Right. Which is laissez-faire. I mean, like, you don't have laissez-faire if you, I mean, one of the, this is one of the natural outcomes of, of, of no governance, uh, you know, of the invisible hand of the market, right? Like, you have to be able to objectify something to, and not, and not have sympathy for it, to exploit it, to make money. Well, so what he which is sort of a natural outcome of that. Like if he actually it's, believes, yeah, it's, it's, like if he actually sat there and was like, I'm not, I'm not ascribing any sort of judgment or morality to laissez-faire, then it's sort of, then he, I don't, how could you, how could you put that out there without having a better understanding of like human nature? Well, even, you know, do you know what okay. I mean? You asked that yeah, Adam yeah. Smith. Here's the thing. Marie's asking here a very good question. How could Adam Smith have written this? And not realize that people are selfish and terrible. Well, yeah. and, and, and frankly, more selfish. And here's the thing. He argues that he argues that the accumulation of wealth is going to happen because people are selfish. Yeah. He does say that the reason his system works is because people are selfish. But his argument is that it, it leads to more good for society. Does it? it basically, he does argues it that the does. selfishness of the individual leads to accidental good for society. Oh, it's trickle down. It's That's basically kind of like case, the very early trickle-down right? economics. It is It is trickle-down economics. That's all it is. Which is just, right? again, it's just, it's just such bullshit. Now, here's, here's the thing, mm-hmm. right? Adam Smith, though, pretty fucking weird guy. Oh, all right? Great. The reason he doesn't seem to understand human interaction is because he's a fucking, he's, it's kind of a weirdo, right? And I can say that as a weirdo myself. Well, why is he a weirdo? All right? Like, I know why you're a weirdo. So here's some, here's part, some but... famous, here's some famous things about him, right? right? So first off. We don't really know that much about him personally. He never got married. His best friend was his mother. What? And he all totally of his personal stable. papers were destroyed at his death at his request. Right? Huh. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. He was known to be comically absent-minded. So there were there was a time where he um was talking to somebody at a tannery about capitalism, and he got so worked up in what he was writing that he fell into a vat of tanning liquid. Mm. Right. Mm. This is a really hilarious story. So this is from um, the diary of Lady Mary Coke. She says, quote, I said many things in uh, Adam Smith's praise, but added that he was the most absent man that ever was. Mr. Darner made him a visit the other morning as he was going to breakfast and falling into discourse. Mr. Smith took a piece of bread and butter which, after he had rolled round and round, he put into the teapot and poured the water upon it. Sometime after, he poured it into a cup, and when he had tasted it, he said it was the worst tea he had ever had. The guy Sounds like an idiot. is a dangerously insane individual. <laughs> All right. We should not be taking advice from Adam Smith. But he's the one who came up with laissez-faire economics. How could he have done yeah, anything but be a, he's a, a fucking benevolent weirdo, genius? All right. Um, some other stuff he did when people um, when when he would like get invited to parties and stuff, he refused to talk about anything he knew because he didn't want it to eat into his book sales. 
Oh yeah. Oh, there's that. There's a stable individual. He sounds like it almost sounds like a character from Arrested Development, right? I mean, it sounds he, like it's a blue. Yeah, it's He's crazy. He is. He is. He's a blue. That's insane, right? Um, like evidently his his office was like uh, was super uh, hoarded. Like it was all cluttered and crazy and whatever. He talked to himself and would laugh at his own jokes when he was walking around. He like would pretend to be sick so he didn't have to go to stuff. Like he kind of sounds awesome, you know. <laughs> Except for like, so like what did he talk about at it. parties? So people were like, "Oh, people would ask him about stuff, and he'd go like, I 'I don't talk about that.' I'm I'm sure he didn't have to make up being the- sick. You wouldn't get invited out. <laughs> what so about? he he said he he told people that he made it a rule when in company never to talk of what he understood. Wow. Yeah. It's a weirdo. It's, it's a little be, bit of a weirdo, right? Because of the visible hand of the market. Now, here's the thing. Adam Smith himself, again, he was describing the way society and economies operated mm-hmm. and the things that seemed to make some economies more wealthy than others. Yes. And in his other works, he was describing how he thought morals came about. Now, again. You didn't put the two together at any time. Well, it's interesting. I would almost I would almost view Adam Smith not as a he's not truly a moral philosopher and he's not even really an economist, I don't think. Or at least not an economist in the way we think of it today. He's he's sort of like somebody who's dis- it's almost like he's an alien looking at the way society operates and just describing yeah, it without a, making any he's judgments. He's a uh, anthropologist. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, he's basically an anthropologist. So when people read his works and try to give to them morality, Mm -hmm. and this is what the English economist of the time will do. They read the wealth of nations and they read the theory of moral sentiments and they erroneously, I believe, to what Adam Smith was actually talking about. Will say that, well. If that's true, that certain people seem to accrue wealth and it is due to the division of labor and whatever and all these other things, they will make the leap then to say that that is because those people have more of the sorts of moral character we want than people who aren't able to hack it in a capitalist society. Yes, which is still the prevailing sentiment. Nothing has changed, yes. right? And so it, it it starts to go from being, well, in a capitalist society, then some people seem to be better suited to succeeding and being successful to then those people who do succeed are better than those who don't to God clearly has blessed the rich because they're good and has smote the poor because they are evil. Yes. But again, Smith basically, sorry, just a quick diatribe. You know, again, that's the invisible hand of the market, right? Or that's the invisible, that's laissez-faire. Like if you do not, so you set up this kind of these, these two structures that, that are not, that are not prescribing any kind of morality or judgment, right? And you're just kind of saying, so here's what's happening. But of course, then that is what could happen. You don't have any oversight saying, hey, you know what? 
Um, this is this is sort of a false dichotomy. Poor people aren't evil. There's reasons that they're in this situation, and you know we should be looking at that instead of saying there. You don't have that, so I, that's what I think is so amazing. It's like he he sets up these things, he describes this, and then it's like, of course, that's what's going to come out of it, right? It's self fulfilling. He wants to he wants to sort of he wants to be able to to borrow a phrase from um noted fan of the podcast Ted Kaczynski um he wants to sort of have his cake and eat it yes but yeah right he yeah. he's making the case that he's he he says kind of weakly he makes this weak argument that says just because the rich are rich does not make them moral and in fact oftentimes the rich are rich because they're amoral they're right they're they're mm-hmm. not moral they're they're selfish and evil and whatever. Um, but then goes on to say, but then being selfish does the most good for the rest of society. As long as you are the ones that are benefiting from being selfish, which is a very small percent since you have a division well, of labor. It's, so, it's, sort, it's sort of an argument of like, it almost sets up the situation where you think, you know, you can be moral but a drain on society and so therefore evil right to society yes. or right it's it's almost like it's kind of a balancing act right it's like does the good that your selfishness does for the rest of society as a capitalist outweigh all of the maybe immoral things you do and does being a burden to society as, as someone who's on the dole who needs to get a welfare even if you're the most pious moral person in the world does that drain on those around you outweigh any good you might do otherwise? He creates this dichotomy. Right. And what the moralists, who are these, who are the people that come later that'll make kind of the Irish famine as terrible as it is, what their argument is, is that, no, the people, the poor, mm-hmm. those who aren't, you know, those who are, um, they sort of create a system where they think, there are true poor right. who are pious and good and are just down on their luck. Mm-hmm. But there's another class of poor who are lazy and dumb. And, and it's all of the Irish um, people. But again, that's like. Un, right. Unsociable. Right there. They, they create this system where they think, well. Clearly, there's a group of people who seem to be more suited for capitalism, and those are the kinds of people we want to be in our society because they create good for everybody. Mm-hmm. But on the other side of that, there are a class of people who clearly are have the traits that we would want to see stamped out of society. Yes, but— And it's just lucky for the English that all those people happen to live in Ireland. Yeah, but the thing that gets me, too, is, again, you have a division of labor, right? You are basically, if you're following what Smith said, is that— you you have to have sort of quote unquote the unskilled labor to do certain parts of that entirety of that job. So what you're you're saying is that unskilled portion of that labor is inherent when you couple this with the inevitability of it is they're they're inherently not good, so we can exploit them. Right? It's just again, it's completely setting it up for for that for that dynamic. Yeah. There's nothing preventing yes. that yes. dynamic. Even if you're pious and poor, you're still, you're never going to be able to migrate up to being, oh, like I'm, I'm, I'm at the top of the food chain for skilled labor and therefore I'm worthy of, 
you know, money, wealth, rights, you know, um, generational wealth, that type of thing, right? Like you've just set up the perfect system to keep people poor and to villainize well, it's their interesting. poverty. It's interesting. While you're wandering think- around telling yourselves funny little jokes, not getting invited <laughs> to parties. Adam. Drinking butter tea like a weirdo. Drinking butter tea like a complete argument, idiot. Go ahead. Yeah. I think the argument that could be made would be... So, the English were not operating laissez-faire economics, really. Right? Yeah. Because they were... They were not freely allowing the marketplace to decide things. Oh, hell no. Yeah. Right. They they were, you know, that's the thing with all of this, right? Right, because the marketplace decided on a rebellion. It's in some (laughs) ways, it's similar to the arguments against against socialism or Marxism, I would say, where people say, you know, oh, well, it's never been really tried. Right. 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 I honestly think you can kind of make the same argument for capitalism. Like, again, the the, the strict adherence to Adam Smith Mm -hmm. And they're re- there. It's again, it's not Adam Smith. A lot of these people, if you read their work and then you read Adam Smith, you're like, these people never read or understood Adam Smith clearly. It, but the. It's the it's the dogmatism and the reliance on this view of capitalism, mm-hmm. on moralist mm-hmm. capitalism. Mm-hmm. That is what does this. And you can't you can't just like you can't separate, um, you know, Leninism from Marxism. You, you, you know, you're not going to have moralist capitalism without Adam Smith. You, know, you can't you can't yeah. break the two. They're they're part of a larger chain. So yeah. um, interestingly enough, before we end this episode. Now that you got me all pissed the off. One, yeah. okay, sorry. The one type of people that Adam Smith did think were like the scum of society. The Scottish. Were landlords. Oh, landlords. No, land, he was Scottish. Oh. Landlords. Really? Well, yeah, he talks about he talks about landlords as basically parasites who they create nothing for society. They do no work. All they do is force money off of people who are doing work. So but again, like how can that, you know, that exist? That's exactly it. Right. I mean, like, yeah, I'm glad that I think the thing that gets me since, you know, since we're wrapping this up is like laissez-faire capitalism is still beloved by a certain group of people today, right? As, as, as really just the pinnacle of how commerce and, uh, you know, American ingenuity and all of this other kind of fictitious bullshit that goes with it. And it's just, even when you start to, just ask certain questions i've never i've never been able to get it to hold up objectively right because everything that's set up is like well it's just is set up to fail like you you've you've sort of proven that people are inherently if they're selfish right like he's saying that you are going to be acting in a selfish way that probably isn't good right and it's just yeah i i don't know i just i you know if if people are inherently selfish and here's the thing, right? It's interesting. If you took. If you got rid of the names from these books mm-hmm. and like just took just took the 
bullet points. Yep. It would be hard, I think, to differentiate between Marx and Adam Smith. Yep. Until pretty deep into their works. I think that's true. The big difference is. I think. Adam Smith has a more. A more positive view of society. And and, and has a, I think, a, a more naive view of society. And I think also Adam Smith did not have a very good view on how technology would change things. I don't think Adam Smith really ever envisioned a world where machines could do the work of the vast majority of the people. Could be, could be. So Smith said in his works, he suggests that it's capitalism or sort of the division of labor that gives us the steam engine. But Marx would say the opposite, that the steam engine created the conditions that give us capitalism. So for for Smith, for Smith, the economic system that we're at now is kind of like the pinnacle of human civilization. It's the best we're ever going to get. And it's what we've always been trying to do. But it's kind of a a view of like, this is the best of all possible worlds. Mm -hmm. In Marx's view, this is. This is one step on the road to a society where none of us have to work because machines can do it all because there is no there is no want for anything. Right. I don't think Adam Smith's view of like the universe could allow for a world where working wasn't a good thing on its own. Yes. Which whereas for Marx work is a work is always exploited. Right. Right. But then you would also think that Adam Smith would then value unskilled labor more or inherently have more of a slant towards the idea of the value of labor. Right. Which is not something that is, again, when you have sort of the division of it, you're naturally saying that, yes, of course, you're going to need everything. Right. Because it's supposed to be a progression. Each person has their own thing that they're doing and it's kind of equal to the end product. But you would I don't know. My thought is you'd probably think that he would uh, safeguard, you know, what that the importance of that more. Yeah, that's just my sense. That's my two cents. Anyways, I swear, dude, as soon as I finished reading Mm -hmm. through his books, I donated them back to the (laughs) bookstore. (laughs) I like they're so badly written. It's so weird, man. You can literally read just the bolded intros to the paragraphs and you can get the exact same. He created something that is that has plagued us ever since then and is beloved, (laughs) beloved by a very certain one percent. I honestly, I don't think he's I do not. I do not think he is as wrong as we think he is. I think that people later on did, in fact, use this use as as the rich and powerful are wont to do. They use the philosophy of the time to make themselves richer. Yeah, well, him and Oppenheimer both like, oops. Maybe I shouldn't have done Uh-oh. that. Like, maybe I should have put some more thought behind that or given some more, I don't know, context to it. But it's like, nope, genie's out of the bottle, my friends. <sighs> Dear listeners, we love you all yes. so, so much. Thank you for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. Please, if you like the show, 
Rate us on iTunes, on Spotify, on Facebook. Tell your friends, tell your family. Uh, suggest us in threads asking for great podcasts. Shout us out. If you want stickers, if we can help you in any way, please reach out to us. We love you all. And we'll be back next episode. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. Our web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Hey, hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com see you soon